Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, if you want to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, Bonnie, you're going to have to control the deal for me this morning. Thank you for that. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 3 down to verse 10 is going to be where we'll spend our time together. Um, I'm going to read the passage and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Let's pray together. Father, we remember that when we pray, we're speaking to God. whose ear we don't deserve to have. But because of Jesus, because we have been united to Him by faith, we stand boldly, boldly in Your presence. And we ask you would do a work in our hearts this morning. We come as needy people, poor in spirit, needing to be filled up. The world, the flesh, the devil has beat us up. 
And because of our weakness, we have taken our eyes off of the sun. And so we ask again this morning that you would lift our gaze and enable us to see Jesus and enable us to see that He is our satisfaction. He is our greatest need. And with Him as our shepherd, we will lack no good thing. Amen. One of the earliest Christian documents that we have is uh, a something called the Didache. It was written sometime around the turn of the second century. And in, in, that, in the Didache, there's some dialogue between a non-Christian named Octavian and a Christian named Minucius Felix. And Octavian, the non-Christian, is antagonizing Minucius, and he's saying this. He says, look, some of you, speaking of Christians, the greater half, the better half, you say, go in need And they suffer cold and hunger and toil. Yet God allows it. He will not or cannot assist his own followers. This proves how weak he is or wicked. You see, Octavian believes that the Christian God is either weak or evil. Either he can't take care of his own people or he's unwilling to. These arguments are made today, um, 1,900 years later, by some people that ironically are called the new atheists. And I'm not sure what's considered new about their 1,900-year-old leftover argument from the second century, but whatever. So Minucius Felix responds. He says, Most of us are said to be poor, But that is not to our shame. It is to our great credit. Men's characters are strengthened by stringent circumstances, just as they are dissipated by luxurious living. Besides, can a man be poor if he is free from want? If he does not covet the belongings of others? If he is rich in the possession of God? Rather, he is poor who possesses much, but still craves for more. Nevertheless, we would ask God for material things if we considered them to be of use. Without a doubt, he who owns everything would be able to concede us a portion. But we prefer to hold possessions in contempt rather than to hold them. It is rather innocence that is our aspiration. It is rather patience That is our entreaty. Our preference is goodness, not extravagance. Close quote. This dialogue reflects the early Christians' thinking because it reflects the thinking of the New Testament. Here in this portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we see all of this fleshed out, don't we? It's not our conquering that commends the gospel. It's our enduring. It's not our triumph that adorns the biblical claims. It's our plotting. Enduring and plotting show 
where the Christian satisfaction lies. It reveals the surpassing excellencies that we have found in Jesus Christ. My summary of the sermon this morning is this. Gospel ministry is commended by God's sustaining power expressed through His minister's great endurance. Gospel ministry is commended by God's sustaining power as expressed in His minister's great endurance. So we'll unpack this section of Scripture in three parts. First, we'll look at ministry recommendations in verses 3 and 4, the first part. Secondly, we'll look at the ministry resilience in verses three, or the end of verse 4 to 7. And then lastly, we'll look at ministry riddles in, seven, in verse 8 to 10. I know it may be laid out differently in your handout, but I think you'll be able to follow along anyway. First, ministry recommendations. This is verse 3 to the first part of verse 4. The apostle writes, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So last week, we looked at the considerable privilege that has been given to every follower of Jesus, who then has the privilege of helping others follow Jesus. As disciples of Christ, we are entrusted with the ministry of reconciling others to Christ. Those who have been reconciled to God through the gospel have become ministers of the same and proclaim the message of that reconciliation um, through Jesus to anyone who will listen. Well, Paul knows that that ministry, that message of reconciliation, will place all of us into conflict in the world. So the Corinthians had a a difficult time with this. They, They liked the world around them. They liked being liked by the world around them. Like the world, they preferred powerful things to weak things. They liked overcomers, not underachievers. And Paul is addressing these errors in their thinking, helping them to set them right side up. And they're having a difficult time receiving it from Paul because he's one of the underachievers. Always in jail, always sick, always in need. In this letter, the apostle takes up reframing Christian life and Christian ministry for the Christian church, telling them it is not by power and might, it is by God's Spirit. It's not by faith, or it's not by sight, it's by faith. It's the last who will be first. Weakness is the way of the kingdom. Here, God commends gospel ministry through the endurance of the faithful. So we would do well at this point, I think, to listen to the apostle, because we do share a lot in common with the Corinthian church on this point. Like them, we have subtly and slowly adopted our culture's preference for the strong and the powerful. Like them, we have leaned into the inertia of fulfillment as a way to happiness, rather than denial as a way to happiness. I mean, this is the land of the free. We don't really care for Jesus talking about taking up your cross, denying yourself, following me. Because a person carrying their cross is a person who is bound, not free. It's a person who is forced to go do something that someone else wants them to do. 
But in the kingdom, it doesn't work that way. In the kingdom, you may spend your entire life ministering the gospel to as many as will listen and see very little fruit. God may be pleased to keep the seed of the gospel that you have shared under the soil until you're long and gone. And there may not be fruit produced from that seed until long after you're in heaven and someone else gets to take the credit. It's my prayer and Pastor Brent's prayer that the Lord might use this letter as you give yourself over to its faithful study to begin to help you and help us to see Christian ministry in the way the Scripture does. That by reading and rereading this letter, we would submit ourselves to the truth and have the Spirit of God reorient our vision of faithfulness, of effectiveness. Because we're very easily prone to pragmatism, to a results-oriented appraisal of things. So if a church is big, for example, we innately think that it's fruitful. If a church is small, then there's got to be something wrong. If an outreach gathers a crowd, then it's certainly effective. And if three people show up to a prayer meeting, well, then we did something wrong. And all of that may be true. A big church might be faithful. A small church might not be faithful. But it's not necessarily true. A big church isn't faithful because it's big, nor a small church faithful because it's small. These things, big and small, are not always good metrics for measuring faithfulness. So here in verse 3 and 4, Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians are using the proper means of appraising ministry. They understand that the troubles that Paul has, he wants them to understand the, the troubles that he has seen in his ministry, in his own life, do not call into question his faithfulness. He wants them to know that his weakness is not a liability, and nor should it be an obstacle to the Corinthians receiving from him. And so he writes, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul would do nothing that would become an obstacle for anyone coming to faith in Jesus. Most certainly, Paul knew the teachings of the Lord Jesus who said that if anyone causes a new believer to sin, well, the best thing to do for that guy is to tie an anvil around his neck and to throw him into the ocean. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, Paul says that he would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Instead, he says here in verse 4, we are servants of God. And commending ourselves to you in every way. Paul's method was to become a servant. Not to become the boss, but to serve. To let go of his own freedoms for the good of others. For the clear proclamation of his message. He explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you have a Bible open, keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 6. And turn backwards just a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 957. In the first column towards the bottom, verse 19, 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. We're just going to read a paragraph here in 1 Corinthians 9. This is the apostle explaining his method. He says, For I am free from all, and I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Paul is commending his own ministry, his message to the Corinthians, and he does, by, does this by pointing to the things that show his weakness, how he was a servant, how he was lowly, how he laid aside freedoms, how he waved aside privileges, entrusting his own life to the Lord and entrusting his own life to those he served. This is a curious method to my mind. Instead of pointing to his accomplishments, He points to his endurances. Instead of pointing to his great revelations, he points to his great resilience. And he takes this up in the second half of verse 4 down to verse 7, where we we see ministry, resilience. So go there to the second half, be the next slide. Second half of verse 4. Let's just read all of verse 4. We, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. Now, the cadence of this passage is, is lost in the translation into English. I wish the translators would have let, left it closer to the original. When you string this, these verses out in Greek, you'll see that Greek word that the ESV translates as the word by there in verse 4, by great endurance. That word by actually appears 18 times in two and a half verses. So he goes, by great endurance. By afflictions, by hardships, by calamities, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, and on and on. Eighteen times. You could call these the Apostle Paul's bylaws for ministry. How would Paul convince the Corinthians to listen to him and to trust in his message? How might he show his ministry credentials and ensure them that his ministry is commendable? By pointing to the resilience of his ministry, by his endurance. Because the strength of a ship is never really known until it's tested by heavy winds and tumultuous seas. Ministry bylaw number one, by great endurance. I've shared this before, but toward the end of his life, the missionary and Bible translator William Carey was asked about what made him successful in ministry. In a lifetime of Bible translation through many hardships and great suffering, Mr. Carey replied this, give me credit 
for plodding. Anything beyond this is too much. I can plod. I can persevere. To this, I owe everything. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. So much of the Christian life is about enduring. The word means to hold up in the face of adversity, to remain steadfast and patient, to persevere. It's often said that the Christian faith is a marathon, not a sprint. It's one foot in front of the other. It's one day after another. You may weep yourself to sleep and then just wake up the next morning and do it all over again. You can plod. Be faithful in the little things. In the Christian life, if you don't quit, you win. There's a reason why in the United, United States military training uh, soldiers, they insist on them making their beds in the morning to perfection. What does making beds have to do with making soldiers? has a lot to do with making soldiers, actually, because it trains them towards excellence in the small things, because big things are rarely big things. They're usually just a string of small things. If you would have great effect in advancing the gospel in your life, be faithful in the little things. Attend faithfully to your time in God's Word. Attend faithfully to your time in prayer. Attend faithfully in your time in gathering for worship on the Lord's Day. Attend faithfully as you come to the Lord's table to take communion. Attend faithfully to discipling others one-on-one. And when circumstances are difficult, endure, plod, Keep reading your Bible, keep praying, keep coming to church, keep coming to the Lord's table, keep meeting one-on-one with others. It's one day at a time, one disciple at a time, faithfulness in the little things. Show up to work on time. Do your projects at work well. Do your job at work well. You might not do a lot of things very well, but one thing you can do well, you can endure. You can be faithful in the little things. And one day, one way that a watching world will know that the Bible is true is by an empty grave and an enduring people. Great endurance serves as a header for the Apostle Paul in the nine circumstances that follow. There are three sets of three conditions which require endurance. So the first set of three are just general circumstances of ministry. He says afflictions, hardships, calamities. The second three come at the hands of others, like beatings and imprisonments and riots. The third are just the normal experience of ministers, labor, so hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. The first set that you see there in verse 4, afflictions, hardships, and calamities. These are just the general expectations of Christian ministry. Don't expect any Christian ministry to be without affliction. In fact, six times already in this letter alone, the Apostle Paul has mentioned this word afflictions. If anything else characterizes his ministry, it's affliction. Besides affliction, we have hardship. 
which just means the state of distress and crisis and pressure. Beside hardship, he says you'll have calamity, which is difficulty and stressful circumstances. Can following Jesus be full of pressure and stress? We might ask the disciples about that. Jesus sent the disciples on a boat trip into a storm in the middle of the night. Twice. Jesus handed the disciples loaves and fish and told them, feed the hungry mob. Twice. Besides hardship, there's calamity. Besides calamity, there's affliction. The second set of three come at the hands of men. Beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Now remember, these are the reasons why Paul is giving the Corinthians why they should listen to him. Well, why should we listen to you, Paul? Well, it's because I get beat up a lot. I get thrown in jail a lot. I've started a few riots. That's why. By the time the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, I looked this up and I might have missed a couple here. But by the time he wrote the letter that we call 2 Corinthians, he had been involved in planting or strengthening churches in Ephesus, Galatia, Phrygia, Caesarea, Jerusalem, Thessalonica, Philippi, Troas, Syria, Cilicia, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Papus, Perga, Cyprus, Seleucia, and Tarsus, at least. Yet when he finds occasion to commend his ministry, he doesn't mention any of that. He doesn't say, you see how many churches I've planted? You see how many letters of Scripture I've written? He doesn't point to the size of his ministry or the number of campuses of his church or his $700 seat, sneakers, or designer jean jacket. He He mentions beatings, imprisonments, and riots. What are we to make of this? This is the apostles' commendation of his ministry by great endurance. The third set of three commendations are just the normal hardships that are experienced in ministry. This speaks to me personally. I've never, of course, been imprisoned for the gospel. I don't think I've ever started a riot, but I do know something of these three, or at least two of them, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. By labor, Paul means exhausting work. Paul worked. Actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, by the grace of God, I outworked all the other apostles. Ministry is exhausting work. Is it any wonder the Lord Jesus fell asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm? It's exhausting. And yet, ironically... It also involves sleeplessness. Sleeplessness accompanies gospel ministry. Ask any pastor. Or better yet, ask any pastor's wife. It's rare that a minister sleeps well all the time. He's either very young in the ministry or he's either very mature in the ministry. John MacArthur says he sleeps great. God bless him. I don't. Paul mentions hunger as a part of the normal experience of ministry. It's likely due to the circumstances of ministry. I doubt very much that prisoners in the first century eat so well as prisoners in the 21st century do. 
I doubt that any of us here have really quite experienced the hunger that he's mentioning here. But I think the point is here that at times in your ministry of the gospel, you will have to forego basic necessities for the sake of the ministry. But just remember, this is how Paul is commending his ministry, by great endurance, by his plodding. He says, I, I know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, but I've got I to finish my course. I won't avoid difficulty in my life because I simply don't like it. I don't count my life as having any value. I will suffer the loss of all things. I will give it all up happily. I'll treat it as garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and participating in his sufferings. He's commending his ministry by great endurance. And now he commends his ministry by great enablements. This is verses 6 and 7. Here we see four methods and four means. Four methods in commending his ministry. Paul says it's by purity, it's by knowledge, it's by patience, it's by kindness. Paul's method was pure. It means that there's no deceit. There's no hidden motives for Paul. He says, my method is by knowledge. He knew the truth. He proclaimed the truth. He promoted knowledge. Paul's method is patience. Christian ministry is humbling for a number of reasons, not least of which is because it's so doggone slow. Can you imagine the effects of ministry, your ministry, of the gospel through your life, if the, if the effects, if the fruitfulness of it was immediate. Can you imagine what might happen to you, to your heart, had you spoken the gospel and every time you do, someone becomes a Christian. Someone repents of sin and begins to follow Jesus. How long do you think it would take for you to begin trusting, not in the message, but in the messenger? I don't know about you, you're most likely very humble, but I can tell you it would probably take one time for me before I would start seeing them as notches on my belt, great things that I'm doing for God. But God keeps the results of ministry generally very slow, with exception to occasional revivals. The ministry of the gospel is slow. It draws out patience. It draws out our dependence on Him. Paul's method is kindness, which just means goodness in action that benefits all. Notice all of these things that Paul's mentioning here are marks of abundance. The true Christian minister is the one who has tapped into the unending overflow of delight in Jesus. And so he or she overflows in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness. That's very much unlike the person who acts out of need and shortage, scarcity. That sort of person takes and uses and can't give. Next, Paul outlines four ministry means. The Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. 
Paul would not endure in his own strength. It was the Holy Spirit working in him. The Spirit of God is what enabled him to endure in faithfulness. He did it with genuine love. Only those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been tapped into the riches of Christ, can offer genuine love. All other expressions of love are taking love, filling a need kind of love. But the Christian love comes from an abundance of the Spirit's work in their life. A Christian who's been filled with the Spirit, who's tapped into the riches of Christ, will speak the truth. There's no other agenda. We're not trying to protect anything. We're not trying to hide anything. You know, some of the reasons why we lie is to protect ourselves. To project something as untrue as if it were true in an attempt to manage our life. But when Christ is your satisfaction, when He is all that you want or need, There's no need to manage your life. There's no need to project anything. You have nothing to hide. He is yours and you are his and all is well. His ministry means by the power of God. Paul understood what we should all understand. We are called to be faithful and the results are up to the Lord. It's his power, not ours. Here in a few chapters, we're going to see Jesus tell the Apostle Paul that my power is made perfect in your weakness. God is glorified by our dependence on Him. God is glorified by our dependence on Him. These are His ministry methods. Paul calls them the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left We'll end our time together considering the resilience of Christian ministry in the nine contrasts that are listed in verses 8 to 10. We'll call these ministry riddles. This is verse 8 to 10. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. The resilience of Christian ministry is revealed in these strange paradoxical ways. Sometimes ministers are honored, but other times they're dishonored. Sometimes Paul would go into a place and he would be praised, and other times he would be slandered. Some cities that he entered, he would be well-received. Other times he would be considered an imposter. It's like that for the rest of us. Sometimes you're going to be well-received by others. Sometimes you're not going to be, and you won't have any chance to defend yourself or explain yourself. It's just the way the Lord has chosen to build his church. As a faithful minister of the gospel, you ought to set your expectations on these verses. Cannot expect everyone to speak highly of you all the time. Cannot expect everyone to like you all the time. You will not always be well received. Sometimes you will be misunderstood. You'll have no chance to explain yourself. 
How hard it is to receive slander and not be able to defend yourself. How hard it is for us to be critiqued and then for the Lord to close our mouths. Paul says, as unknown and yet well known. As the differences between Christianity and the culture deepen, as that gap widens, Christians, we we ought to be prepared for marginalization, maybe in ways that we've never seen it before. And as we're marginalized, we should prepare ourselves for the accompaniment of loneliness. You might feel very lonely at work or in your family. I had a conversation with my own daughter just a couple of days ago about how lonely it can be to be a Christian in school. You could be the most loving person, and yet, because you believe the Bible is true, be seen as so very unloving. This is because our world doesn't really have a category for someone who loves you and yet tells you that you're wrong. And it's made worse at least in many young people's lives, it's made worse by those who claim the name of Christ and celebrate sin. It further isolates the faithful. They get labeled as bigoted. And yet, no matter how deeply you feel misunderstood and alone, Christian, no, you are never, ever alone. You are known by the only one who's worth being known by. You are well known and gathered into his family and given a taste of heaven. Paul goes on, as dying, and yet behold, we live. Remember back in chapter 4, the apostle said that we apostles, we carry about in our body the death of Jesus. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes that as Christians, we're considering, we should consider ourselves living sacrifices, laying down our very lives for His glory. Jesus Himself said that if you lose your life, you will find it, which means that at times, Denying yourself, taking up your cross, come follow me. At times, following Jesus is going to feel like you're dying. And yet, if we're to take Jesus at his word, then what Jesus seems to be saying to us is you are never more like your true self than when you are denying yourself and following him. Because if you lay down your life for his sake, you will find it. He goes on, as punished and yet not killed. Well, that may be a reference to the physical beatings that Paul suffered. It may also be a reference to the discipline of the Lord in his life. Whatever, whatever Paul's referring to, whether it's physical beatings or the discipline of the Lord, what we can know is that the believer is never punished by the Lord. The Lord chastens us, He disciplines us, but He never punishes us. The punishment for our sin has already been suffered 
by the Lord on the cross. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is one of the paradoxes of Christian ministry. So often we are filled with sorrow, looking at the effects of sin in our world, looking at the effects of sin on those we love, looking at the effects of sin in our own life. And yet Paul says, amidst the flood of sorrow, we are always filled with joy. The joy of the Lord satisfies us, sustains us, because He Himself is our joy. Life in a fallen world will always give you reasons to grieve. And yet as a believer, you'll always be sustained by the Lord in joy. Though we may be poor, we are making many rich out of the abundance of our connection to Christ. You may have nothing, but you have everything because you have Christ. Remember what Minucius Felix said at the opening, can a man be poor if he's free from want? Or as King David sang, the Lord is my shepherd, I can't want anything. A Christian who is satisfied in God lacks no good thing. You see, for him, all that he wants and needs is found in abundance in his Savior. He's been united to him, and all that flows out of that unity is abundance. Jesus is his greatest need. He has found peace with God through Christ. He's forgiven Everything else is icing. Jesus is his joy, and Jesus cannot be lost to him. And so everything that he does for Jesus' sake is out of abundance. Jim Elliot died as a missionary, bringing the gospel to the unreached peoples of Ecuador. He put it like this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Gospel ministry is commended by God's sustaining power expressed through his ministers' great endurance. Endure well for Jesus' sake, knowing that the Lord has united you to Christ and that in him are unceasing satisfactions of unending joy. May your life this week be an overflow of your relationship to Christ. Proclaim Him, trust Him, enjoy Him with great endurance for the glory of His name. Amen? Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. We'll take a moment and go before the Lord and confess our sins to Him. And at the end, we'll have an assurance of pardon. Father, great is your faithfulness to us. You are our satisfaction and our delight. You have taken us, your people, out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. We are your servants, commending your ministry by the great afflictions and hardships that you bring us through with unassailable joy. Lord, we confess to you 
We've not always found Jesus to be our delight. We've been too easily satisfied by lesser joys. Will you forgive us this? This idolatry? We confess that we have constructed wrong definitions of significance and success. Lord, we admit that we are too much like the culture in our assessments. As we assess hardship, as we assess circumstances, as we assess church, as we assess the Spirit's work in our life, forgive us of this. Fill us with your Spirit anew to write these truths of this letter on our hearts draw us into deep and meaningful times in your word and enable us to submit our thinking to the scriptures reframe success for us teach us the value and the priority of faithfulness in the little things Lord would you give us a truer knowledge of your son of the abundance that he is to us Forgive us for loving anything more than Him. Make us pure. Teach us knowledge. Grant us patience. Make us kind. Fill us with Your Spirit. Make our love genuine. Help us to speak truth. Help us to do this all by Your power, not ours. May we fight the good fight of faith with the weapons of righteousness. May we never be in love with this present world, seeking to be honored and praised by it. Keep us true to your Son. Keep us satisfied in Him. Keep us alive by His Spirit. Keep us rejoicing in His gospel. May we preach of His unsearchable riches. May He be our everything. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if you've confessed your sins and are trusting in the Lord to forgive you your sins, 1 John 1, 9 says that he is faithful to cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness.